Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're well. Got an interesting one for you this time. What is it like to own a European soccer team? What's attractive about it from a business perspective? Where are the opportunities? How do you avoid the pitfalls? Well, we're hearing in this episode from Jordan Gardner, an American sports executive who is the chairman and co-owner of FC Helsingor in Denmark's Superliga. He's also a minority investor in Swansea City of the EFL Championship and in League of Ireland side Dundalk. And he and his partners have ambitions to create further links between clubs on the continent and perhaps even assemble a group of teams over time. A couple of weeks ago, I had a really extensive chat with Jordan where he discussed that project, what he's learned so far in the game, dealing with fan groups, the priorities for Helsingor, the importance of establishing a culture within an organisation, the incentives for investors and how they're affected by promotion and relegation, the transfer market and European competition, commercial ambitions, local knowledge and speculation about new models for running clubs and the league pyramid. Lots to cover. We can also point you to some preparatory or even supplementary reading on this. Uh, Jordan has written a four-part expert's guide to owning a European soccer club. You can find it all on sportspromedia.com and it is insightful stuff. Before we get on to that, this week as we're speaking is the SportsPro OTT Summit USA. That is on Wednesday the 3rd and Thursday the 4th of March. I'm not going to give you the hard sell on that again, but if you do want to find out more or you want to register to take part live and watch on demand, sportspro-ottusa.com is where you need to go. It's going to be great. I should highlight as well that we'll be covering the best of it on all of our channels and we'll have podcasts wrapping things up at the end of each day. So listen out for those. Matt Rogan's Playbook podcast series, that's also well underway. It's alternating with my interviews here in the early part of each week. His latest conversation is with Paul Brown, the founder of plant-based food company Bowl Foods. And it's a fascinating look at purpose, at commitment to a vision and to values as an organisation grows. Be sure to check that out. There will be another episode for you as well next week. Okay, that's all that's coming up. What we have for you now is Jordan Gardner talking about club ownership in European soccer. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. Jordan Gardner, Chairman, CEO and co-owner of FC Helsingor. Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I've already undersold you because uh, you are not just involved with Helsingor, you're actually involved right across a range of clubs in in European soccer and we're going to talk about club ownership and the opportunities that exist at the moment for investors and and kind of the investment picture in in the European game right now you have recently produced for sports pro it will be uh, it's it's very recently as we're talking but it'll be a couple of weeks ago as people are getting this um the insider's guide kind of to owning a a a, a soccer club um but how? What's your background? How did you get involved in in investment in in sports teams in the first place? 
Yeah. So um, I had a background. I had a company in the kind of live ticketing and technology space here in the U.S. And I sold that about five or six years ago. I played soccer growing up here in the States, uh, pretty close to a professional level. And I knew I wanted to get into the sport. Um, I had opportunities through very close friends uh, in the United States to get involved with some lower division clubs, more on the operations side. And, you know, I realized over a period of time that European football, European soccer was much more well suited to my background, kind of more entrepreneurial. You could come in and you could buy a lower division club and get it promoted. You could run these clubs more efficiently. There was a robust player transfer market. And so everything I've done is kind of grown organically. And I'm sure we'll get to it a little bit very strategic in terms of making specific investments for specific reasons leading up to our controlling majority interest of our current club in Denmark, which is obviously FC Helsinger. So the clubs that the clubs that you are involved with, uh, Swansea City, who are pushing mm-hmm. for promotion uh, from the Championship into the Premier League, Dundalk, who've had a very interesting year getting into the Europa League group stages, uh, and Helsingor as well. How how complicated is the picture for an investor when they're looking at European football? Because you have promotion and relegation, as you've just alluded to, but also. The, the nature of the opportunity is different from territory to territory. Yeah. I mean, the entry points are low on some ways you could buy, you know, you can go, you can be Rocco Camiso. I wrote this in one of the articles and come in and buy a club in Syria in two weeks, or you can take an approach like mine and take a period of time and may be very strategic and methodical about how you approach the investment. So it's kind of, you know, Europe, European football investment kind of is what you make of it. You can go in and create a multi-club portfolio. You can buy, you can go in and do what the guys at Wrexham have done and create a media platform. You can try to buy a club as a real estate play. There's a lot of different kind of angles you can take. I mean, what's interesting and what I like about my strategy is, you know, even though I have a very, very small stake in a big club like Swansea or a club like Dundalk, I still have involvement, even though it's not operational. I still can can get access and really see the ins and outs of the way those businesses and those clubs are run and use those, you know, to really learn best practices and and understand how the clubs are run well, or things I would improve and do differently and take that to other clubs that I'm more, have more controlling interest of like our club in Denmark. Mm. And at what point when you decided, okay, I'm going to get involved in, in the professional game on the business side, at what point did you think, I am less interested in selling services into these clubs. I'm more interested in in owning a piece of them. And then from there, at what point did you think I'm going to build towards this portfolio approach rather than just taking one club on and, and seeing what you could do with that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think I the light bulb went off when I was kind of just tired from the outside of seeing how poorly run these clubs were and realizing that if you want to enact change, and I'm a big proponent of building culture in organizations and certainly sports is no no different um you have to own the clubs everything starts at the top in terms of hiring employees both on the sporting side and on the commercial side building culture having long-term strategy and you really can't do any of that on the outside looking in and only to a certain extent of course as a minority small investor you can't really do that either right so i think you know the reason that I took the approach that I have taken is I knew American investors in particular who had come in and bought big clubs in Europe and failed miserably had come in with kind of a bit of American arrogance saying, you know, we're smarter, we're better at business. We can run these football clubs better than you can and have really kind of come back with their tail between their legs and lost a whole lot of money. And so I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want, of course, no one wants to lose money, but I didn't want my forays into European football to become, you know, a similar end game that other Americans group had group had. So of course I've made mistakes over the years and I've learned a lot, 
but it feels like if we make a decision at an FC Helsinger and we make a mistake, the scale is low enough where we can move on from that. But if you make a mistake at a huge club, if you overspend on a player transfer or you know you don't budget properly, you're losing hundreds of millions of dollars. You're out of business, right? And so I felt like it's just really important to have a good basis of understanding. I know business, I know the sport, certainly the North American context. But now having spent three or four years on and off on the ground in Europe, I feel like I have a really good handle of how these clubs should be run. Mm. I mean, does an opportunity like this, is it unique to European football in that you can have this slightly lower barrier to entry, but then you also have the the consistent growth opportunity? If you If you get it right, you can improve the team on the pitch, you can improve the team off the pitch. If you compare that to what a similar level of investment would, would get you in, in the US uh, outside the major leagues. It is a completely different opportunity, I suppose. Yeah, it's a totally different model. I mean, what you're buying into in North American sports is kind of a stable, for the most part, franchise model where you're coming in and you're saying, I'm going to invest in Major League Soccer or Minor League Baseball, and I'm going to capture the growth of that asset over a period of time, right? I'm going to have I'm going to know exactly how much my television media rights are every year. I don't have to worry about things like relegation. Um, it, it, you know, I understand why it makes sense from a North American investor perspective, but from an entrepreneurial perspective, it, you don't have that upside. Of course, you don't have the, the, the massive downside, but you don't have the upside. It's much more like you're investing in a stock. When I talk to MLS owners, I know they say, look, I'm investing in this club so I can give it to my kids and my grandkids. And by that time, American soccer will have grown to the point where this asset is worth five, six, seven, ten 10 X what it is. That's not the approach I take. I'm much more of an operations kind of guy. I love the idea of coming in and, and being more efficient and, and showing that value. And so with FC Helsinger, we got ourselves promoted this summer. And like, yeah, I was getting promoted from the second division to the first division in Denmark, right? This isn't this isn't the Champions League, but it was so incredibly satisfying to say, to come in and realize that we came in and bought a club that was really struggling, changed the culture had a really hands-on approach and bringing in a new coach and bringing in new players. And we saw the results. And of course, there's a financial component to it. We get more television revenue and our the value of our club has, gr- has grown. But you know, for me, European football offers just much more opportunities than a more a different, more stable approach. And again, that's why you see more kind of venture capital and high net worth individuals coming into North America because they're they're definitely get afraid by the relegation, the risk tolerance. They don't have the risk tolerance of, to get into European football necessarily. I mean, we're, we're kind of tracking quite loosely through this conversation the the four parts of, of the series that you wrote for the Sports Pro site, and we've discussed the opportunity. And now, I suppose we should talk about the the due diligence side of it. As you say, the risk profile is different if you're the owner of a European club because you could go down, uh, key players could leave, and and that will it might bring some capital in the club, but it also might seriously affect the potential uh, of the team on the pitch if you if you get the timing of um, recruitment and sales wrong there's a whole lot of things going on how what ducks do you need to get in a row before you commit to to buying a club yeah I mean I think you know even it starts even when you want to identify hey I want to buy a European soccer club I think too many groups particularly American groups they take a backwards approach they take a really like a, a deal focused approach so everyone says okay cool we know Newcastle's for sale and that deck's been floating around and we know it's 400 million pounds and okay that's cool that's a sexy club instead of taking a step back and saying wait a minute uh, why do I want to invest in European football what kind of club do I want do I want a club in the UK do I want a club of that size right 
what kind of infrastructure do I want, right? Is, is, what is my main business model going to be? Is it going to be player sales? Is it going to be promotion? Is it going to be champion, you know, finishing top six to get into Europe? So I think too many of these groups take a backwards approach. And so they don't take the time to do the due diligence to come in and say, what is the market I want? And they identify a club and then they don't necessarily take the time to really dig into everything in relation to the club, everything from the finances to the assets, which in many cases are the employees and the staff and the sporting side. I mean, I know groups that have come in and bought clubs and said, oh, the club's winning games, so everything's fine. And maybe the coach is the right coach. Maybe the sporting director is the right sporting director, but there's so much more under the surface when it comes to the entire organization. So, I mean, I used the example in the article of, of Rocco Camiso coming in and buying Fiorentina in two weeks. And you know, he realized after, you know, a couple of weeks after he bought the, the team that there was all these under the table deals with agents and there was all this money that, that was owed and there was all this sketchy stuff going on. And for me, the challenge is that this you know, European football, there's there's an inherent risk, as we've talked about, right? There's inherent risk of relegation. There's inherent risk of players getting injured or player performance. You can't control things on the pitch as much as you possibly can, of course, because it's a sport. What you can control is you can control the finances, you control control your your employees, you control control your culture. And I think a lot of groups kind of overlook that. So if they don't do proper due diligence and spend the time to build the relationships and understand what that club is about and make sure every every box is checked from also a financial perspective. You buy the club and you realize, oh, wait a minute. Like, you know, I, I use this analogy is you, you buy a house and you think, okay, I have to fix up a little bit. But if you don't do proper due diligence, you buy the house, you walk in the door, you look under the floorboard and you're like, oh, wow, right? This is a mess. I have to change everything, right? And that, that just takes time and money and energy. And so it just depends. If you have a lot of money and you don't care and you don't want to treat it like a business, you can just throw money at the problem. But for most sophisticated groups now, like ours, we want to treat it like a business. So you really have to do proper due diligence to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, you don't want to be Tom Hanks in, in the money pit, yep. basically. Yep. What do, you, what do you have to be prepared to lose? I mean, I, I think you have to understand, of course, you know, I think everyone looks and they say, for instance, you know, an American group just went in and bought a Serie A club for 25 million euros. And that's a good price for a Serie A club. There's no doubt. I think it's Spezia. And there's no doubt about it that people look at that and say, that's a deal. And I think a lot of Americans are particularly very deal focused. But of course, there's so much more that goes into it than just the upfront 25 million euros. Like what, what's their debt situation? What capital inlay? What commitments have they made over the next year? Right. So from a financial perspective, do you understand what you're getting yourself into? That's clearly not just 25 million euros. What is your three to five year business plan, particularly in in midst of COVID? So, you know, that might turn turn into an investment that you're actually really needing to put in 50 million minimum to understand what you're getting yourself through, right? And then I think what you also need to understand is like, like I said earlier, what are the assets, right? Who's the CEO? Is he doing a good job? Can you evaluate him on the outside? Like, what does the commercial team look like? What does the sporting director? What does the coach? What do the players look like? Right. Of course, you can evaluate the assets from, a, OK, we have three players that we think we can sell over the next 12 months and they'll be worth X. Right. But there's so much more to it when it comes to actually executing. Right. And you're executing a business in a foreign country, especially if you want to keep the assets in place. If you realize many of these clubs are for sale because they're not particularly well run. So for the most part, if you, if you know what you're doing, you should come in and bring in new people that can change everything, which is what we did in Denmark. And so that just terms of understanding what you're getting yourself into that's a completely different proposition because you're starting a business in a foreign country from scratch yeah let's let's look at uh at housing or let's look at the opportunity that that you identified there you, you'd had your you know you'd been looking around the continent for a while you'd been involved with a couple of clubs what was it about that specific club that attracted you 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Denmark in general was interesting. I mean, I think now we've seen it. I think it, you know where we sit today, now two years later, Denmark. I think I read today had the highest amount of foreign ownership of any club or any country in Europe in terms. Of, I think there's 17 different groups, um, at least in the top in the top two divisions. I think um, you know, Denmark was interesting. We I wanted to go to a place where most people spoke English because I felt like that was going to be a good transition. Again, it was more about organically scaling. If we if if we jump to a, a club in France or Spain or Italy, I thought the cultural and language barriers would be really challenging. So the idea was if we can operate a business and a club well in Denmark, uh, we can transition that to a more difficult place where it's more difficult to do business. Helsinger was a really interesting club, had a new stadium that was opening, which opened last summer, was uh, reasonably close to a big European uh, hub of Copenhagen. It's 40 minutes outside Copenhagen. And it had a history of being in the top levels of Danish football in terms of the top levels in Scandinavian football. And I had really kind of struggled a bit, but, you know, we felt the club was, it, it was kind of owned by a group of local individuals. They called it a freening in Denmark, which is like a community organization. And we felt it, it had a lot of the right recipe to really be kind of professionalized and, and taken to the next level. And of course I, I knew there were limitations going into a country like Denmark. There's only so much television and media rights at, even at the top division, there's only so much you could sell players for. But the idea was, if we can operate a club well in a place like Denmark at a club like Helsinger, then there's absolutely no reason we can't scale and do the same thing at a, in a club in La Liga or in Liga in France or in Serie A, right? So, you know, fast forwarding two years later, we've gone through so many different challenges and ups and downs, and it's been definitely a really interesting process. But again, the nice thing is, is our, you know, I, I was just on a chat before about this, is like when we're talking about making mistakes or dealing with things like COVID, the scale of what we're doing is at such a low level that our risk is reasonably low, right? At the end of the day, this is only a couple million euro club. There's only so much money we can possibly lose because of COVID, right? If we're at a hundred million euro club, we're talking massive scale. And so I think that that's what was attractive about this club and this particular country is it gave us the platform to really, I don't want to say learn on the fly because we had a pretty good sense of what we were doing, but like really understand what and how we could run a European football club efficiently and it kind of checked all the boxes for us. Mm. It's an interesting point about it being owned by the community. That's something that, uh, similar to Swansea, when when the investment went in there, that was a club that had been kind of rescued by its own fans and, and got back on its feet by its own fans who then got into conversations with um, with investors as a way of taking that forward. Um, and it's a similar thing that's happened at Wrexham. Um, which is a club you're not involved with, but one that you uh, you referenced in your in your piece, where Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney and and company have have uh, have opted to invest there. That, that they again are dealing with a fan group. What's what are the advantages and, and pitfalls of of that kind of transaction? Because you're taking something off the fans, but I guess you know that you're you're taking it off people who have a very um, strong idea of of how the club operates at, at every level? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm very uh, negative in my experience on kind of fan ownership or fan involvement of actually the running the day-to-day business of these clubs. I understand, um, of course, your supporters are a huge part of your club and um, they're the lifeblood of your club in so many different ways. But I think, for instance, in Helsinger, um, the group that owned the club, Previous to us, you know, the chairman of the club was a former police officer and no offense to him, but he didn't have the background in terms of actually running a professionalized business or a professionalized club. Um, So I think that's the challenge that you have is many times these fan or community groups 
run these clubs and they don't necessarily have the wherewithal to run them properly. That's not to say that private investors like myself always run these clubs well, because there's plenty of examples of groups that don't run the clubs well. But I think it's really difficult. Their motivate their set of motivations are so different. Like, you know, we my day to day is thinking about how do we make sure the bills are paid and the payroll is paid and we can look at our PL. Fans and supporters, they don't think about it. they don't think about how the bills get paid, right? They don't understand how COVID's affecting our organization. Like very few supporters understand the ins and outs of the actual financial piece of the club, of any of these clubs. And so I think when it comes to decision making, if you have supporters on your board or if they're in the power, a position of power, I think you run into a lot of issues where their motivations are not necessarily aligned with actually running the, these clubs efficiently. That's just the way I stand. Of course, you need to find a way to merge their passion and support for the club into a genuine way. And some clubs do a better job than others. Um, but I personally don't see that on the ownership and management side being a, a net positive whatsoever. Mm. But in terms of the transition, uh, when, when you came in and you said you I'm open a dialogue with them and, and you said, this is the deal that we would like to do for the club and this is our vision for the club. How does, how does that affect it when you are dealing with a trust uh, or, a, or a community group rather than another private owner? Yeah, it's a different conversation, right? Because you're not, most of the conversation is more, what is your vision for the club? Are you going to be a good caretaker of the club? You know, when you invest in the club, more more often than not, the money is going into the club because it's obviously not going to necessarily go into someone's pocket because it's a community organization. So when you're dealing with a private you know, individual, it's much more transactional. Um, the conversations we've had in Denmark, for instance, are much more about, well, what's your vision for the club? Are you going to continue our focus on youth development, right? Are you going to take care of the club? How long are you going to be here? And so that's really where it's important to build the relationships. And that's where it goes back to the due diligence of, can you build the trust of the local individuals? Because at the end of the day, they might not be owners of the club anymore, but they're influential, influential individuals in the community who aren't going anywhere, right? They might be big sponsors. They might be, um, you know, obviously they're big supporters and fans of the club. So some of those conversations can be difficult and challenging at times, but I think if you have the right approach and understand what those groups are looking for and what they need to hear, I mean, you can't just come in and say, I'm going to, you know, we're going to treat this like a, a business. We're a you know, private equity from fund from the Middle East, and we're going to wring every penny out of this because the those groups will just be like, okay, cool. No, thank you. Right. You have to come in with a genuine interest to treat these clubs with respect and understand the, the history and the culture of them. Yeah. Are you more likely to have the exit conversation up front as well? You know, you might have an idea in your head if you're buying off another private uh, owner, what at what point you would see yourself, you know, is this a, is this a position that you want to hold for life or is it um, an asset that you want to grow and then pass on to somebody else? I guess it, it wouldn't be that owner's business, what you thought about that in the long run, but a, a community group or, or a fan ownership group might might be thinking, well, Jordan, in, in three or five years, if you think you've reached, if you think you've got as far as you can with it, where where would you go next? Who would you take it to next? Is that does that conversation come in earlier with a with a fan group? It does, yeah. I mean, it's also a difficult conversation, right? Because there's so many variables at play, right? I don't know. For instance, we could be at Helsinger for mm. a year, ten years, twenty years. Like I think we're going to be there, but of course, there's so many different variables at play. Um, yes, you do get asked. I don't think there's an expectation that you're going to be at this club for life. I do think. Um, I think there's an expectation that you're not going to come in and flip the club in a year, right? Or that you're going to come in and run into the ground and leave, right? Yeah. So I think there's a minimum expectation, but I think it's more talked about in generalities. You know, I think 
I would say if you had to put a number to it, most groups are like, look, you need to be here for three to five years, let's say, to give it a good go and make sure that you treat the club with respect. And after that time, if you move on for whatever reason, that's okay. Um, but yes, it is something that gets brought up in early conversations. Hello, this is Matt Rogan. I've spent my career creating and scaling businesses in sports and entertainment. And now I'm trying to find out how businesses can best make their way through these extraordinary times. So together with SportsPro and with leaders from inside and outside sport, I've created the Playbook series. It's the place to go for agenda-free, pragmatic advice to navigate your organization through change. Catch up on our library of articles and podcasts and learn more about how our new labs program can help you succeed. Head to sportspromedia.com playbook to find out more. Once you've bought Helsingor, what were what were the first things that you wanted to address there, both from an operational standpoint, from a cultural standpoint? Yeah, so we, you know, we had bought this club that had very good infrastructure, but was really struggling. The culture wasn't good. Um, the club had gotten relegated and was just about to get relegated again. Um, so for me, the first probably twelve months was entirely about just stabilizing the club and changing the culture cleaning up, professionalizing the club. Um, it just wasn't run in a professional manner, everything from the finance side of the organization to the way the players were treated, to the recruitment, to you know human resources. Everything was just run in a really kind of uh, a way you would expect people who don't necessarily know how to run a professionalized business, you would expect them to run a business and it just wasn't, wasn't well run. Um, so I think for us, it was about stabilizing the club. Of course, our first priority the first year was to get promoted back to the Danish first division, which we did. And so really, you know, the club had been promoted or relegated five years in a row going on five years before we bought it. So we realized like that's not a model that works for any club in Europe in any league. Right. So you need stability, right. As much as you possibly can. And I think we've, we've done a good job at that. We had to bring in a lot of our own people. I brought in an American CEO. We elevated a new Danish sporting director. We brought in a new Danish coach. So, you know, for us, I think the stability has been the keys to success. You know, we've had the same coach for a year and a half. We've had the same sporting director for two years. We've had the same CEO for a year and a half. So the club just didn't have that stability before we bought it. And I think that um, letting the club grow organically and build a culture organically, and that obviously translated to success on the field. We're having a good year this year. So I think a lot of what we did happened organically, and we could spend a whole podcast digging into the weeds about every little thing we did when we bought the club because there was so much that went into it. But really, it was about making smart strategic decisions, some decisions that weren't necessarily popular at the time, but that we knew and I personally knew were in the best interest of the club in the long run. How did that match up with what you had expected to be able to do uh, when you were when you were buying the club? When I bought the club, I honestly thought the club was, uh, I guess I could say in better shape, uh, was more stable than it was. On the outside looking in, it seemed like, okay, the club was having, going through some struggles, but like everything looked oh reasonably okay. And it was like the house analogy. Uh, you know, I thought that the house needed some fixing up, but I didn't realize really how how challenging the environment was until we actually own the club and you're actually starting to pay the bills and you have to deal with people reporting to you from an employee perspective. So it was much more of a heavy lift when it came to like kind of restructuring the organization than I expected. Um, what really kind of blew me away, honestly, was how, um, I don't want to say negative is maybe not the right word, how problematic the 
the, the on-field product was. You, know, you expect players to be professionals and yeah, they might not win every game, but players were just like, you could just go to training and you could just tell that players did not want to be there. They didn't like the coach. They thought they were players in a higher division and they were playing down here. Mm. The culture, at least from an on-field pers- perspective, of course it, it resonated throughout the organization, but I was just shocked to see in the locker room, from my perspective, how bad the culture was. And I realized that was just a culture of losing and a culture of lack of leadership. And so that surprised me. That really surprised me. And I was really um, concerned about that because at the end of the day, right? Like, you know, so much of what we do from a business perspective relies on how we do on the pitch, whether that's fans coming to the games or sponsors or whatnot. And so I felt like I had to be really, really decisive in making changes and it didn't happen right away. But like, I think that was the most important thing I did was like new coach, clear out the roster, new sporting director, new culture, new strategy. And, you know, within, I'd say six to 12 months, you could definitely see that kind of things change. And now you see our players will come out in the local media and say, FC Helsinger is great. The organization is fantastic. They take care of us. The facilities are good. The environment's great. We want to come here. And that's, that's really satisfying for me to see that after the, you know, seeing where the club was 12 months ago. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I was going to ask you a question about people next, but it was going to be a a different one which I'll, I'll come to but football is referred to as a people business and everything is because obviously but, but specifically do, is there enough understanding of the influence of stuff like chemistry and the influence of culture and the influence of, because it's also so much a talent business and it's so much about who you can buy to make you better and, and all the rest of it does that look different from the inside I think very few clubs um, take the time to really understand how important culture is. I mean, I think you see the success stories. You see like Bielsa at Leeds, right? He's a huge proponent of having a very specific system in place and building culture. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, these are professional footballers, footballers making tens of millions of pounds playing the sport. But, you know, it's about motivating men and building an environment where your players, your staff, they want to come to work every day. And I think there's so many of these clubs are run so poorly from the top and there's so many misman- so much mismanagement and infighting in the organization. Uh, and then you have agents that come into play with players and you know, all sorts of you know, external factors that it becomes really difficult to create an environment where you're going to be successful. So I think very few clubs, like I said, actually take the time to understand, hey, if we're going to bring that player in from Brazil, what's his mentality like? How is he going to transition from playing in Brazil to playing in the UK, right? You know, you can't solve for everything, understanding how a foreign player is going to come into a market. But how is his off the field mentality? What is his leadership characteristics? How are they going to fit into our locker room? Right. And so that's why I was really pleased with the coach that we have in Denmark. You know, he has a background being a coach in the Super League. And of course, he has a strong footballing background, but he has a background in human resources in the real world and he knows how to motivate people. Right. And I think that's, in my opinion, equally as important, if not more important than tactics right everyone talks about this coach is a tactical genius okay that's important but i think building culture and motivating people motivating men is just as important if not more important yeah and and from your perspective you had a project that you wanted to put in action and you you wanted to hit the ground running i'm sure you were really keen to to address some of the things that you'd seen around the club the the question i was going to ask before was football is a, a people business is a contacts business it's there's a lot of informal networks in football. How straightforward was it? How did you go about taking whatever framework you had for how you wanted the club op- operations to look um, and putting that into practice, actually bringing people into the club who you wanted to be there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was really important kind of on two sides. On, on, on the first side is we 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 had an assistant coach who was at the club who we realized was really one of the guys behind the scenes who was doing all the player recruitment and was able to bring in a lot of the top players that had where the club had success previously. So we were able to elevate him to the sporting director role. And we realized his networks within Scandinavia and domestically in Denmark in particular were so strong that he was able to basically build a core roster for us that was able to give us a lot of stability, right? I think a lot of foreign groups, and we were no different, come in and say, okay, we're going to bring in a whole bunch of foreign players. We'll bring in American players. We'll bring in this. And of course you can do that. But if you don't have a really core, stable domestic roster that understands the landscape of that football footballing culture, I think you're really going to struggle. And so for elevating Brian, our, our assistant coach to sporting director, really gave us the stability on the sporting side and gave us a good, solid foundation. On the commercial side, you know, I brought in an American CEO, a guy who had worked for me in operations at football clubs here in the U.S. And you know, it took some time, but he was able to really stabilize the commercial side of the organization. There's, you know, there certainly was a period of months for both Brian and particularly for our, our CEO as an American that there was cultural differences and learning curves. You know, dealing as an American coming into a socialist country and how do you run a business efficiently? But after a period of time, you realize, look, if you have leadership on the commercial and the sporting side you're 90% of the way there, then they can you know, transition their leadership and their culture down to their employees and make sure everything's run efficiently. And if we, if something's not working right, they can remove that, that person from the equation and bring in someone else. And so it took time. I think it has to happen organically. I think everyone thinks that you bring in a new coach, you bring in a new commercial director and everything changes like that. Right. And no, it doesn't happen overnight. Like if you bring in the right people, they bring in the right mentality and all the puzzle pieces in your organization are, are there from a culture perspective it will happen over time. And now, of course, putting COVID to the side, you're saying, okay, you get promoted, you're winning games, your commercial numbers look good, you know, the community is supporting your club. Like, how does that happen? Well, that happens over a period of six, eight, 10 months of doing the right thing from a, from a leadership perspective. Yeah. And, and what's, your, what's your ambition for the club now? And how has that changed in the, in the time since you've got there? Do you almost have to, you know, you've been promoted, you're mid-table, at the moment in uh, in the Superliga, do you almost have to be, um, is the temptation there to accelerate? Is the temptation there to to, to push on and, and try and do things that you weren't thinking you would do when you were mapping out your strategy at the outset? Um, I think it's not there only because COVID has obviously put a, a dampening <laughs> on everything. And that's just kind yeah. of the way every football club is dealing with right now. Um you know, I think our end goal is, you know, we have a good solid batch of young players that we probably feel like we would have sold some of them by now, you know, putting COVID to the side. So I think we really feel it's important to commercialize and, and really professionalize the club in terms of selling players. I think that's really important. Any club of our size really needs to sell players. And that timeline has been pushed back because of COVID and the, the player transfer market has really been depressed. Um, you know, I think we're getting to the point where we're a stable club. We're pretty much there already. And that's a huge accomplishment. Can we continue hitting above our weight? Right. So we're in the division right now with 12 teams. We have the second lowest wage bill in the league and we're, we were in fifth place going into last weekend. Right. So you're starting to say, okay, maybe it's not realistic to finish in the top two based on who we are as a financial model, but can we continue to do more with less? Can we continue to run the club efficiently, sell some players, I think in the longer run, of course, there's limitations being at a small club in Scandinavia. The longer run is we buy a big, whether it's with this current ownership group in Denmark or with a different group, you do, you replicate this model at a bigger club, right? You buy a second division team in France, putting aside their media rights situation. 
you bring uh, bring in best practices, you get that club promoted, and obviously all of a sudden that's an interesting you know financial model, right? So I think we're at the point probably in the next twelve months about scaling the model. Mm. Um, Helsinger I think is an entry point to Europe uh, as its own kind of self sustained model is always going to be really interesting, but being in a smaller country of course always has its limitations. I want to get onto that um, yeah that that point about the the multi club uh, the networked model in just a sec, but just to, to kind of give us some grounding for that, if you are looking outside of the big five leagues and even, you know, outside of the, the, the strata that exists there at the moment with, with what's going on with broadcast rights and so on, we know, we understand roughly what the opportunity is at the, at the very top end of, of the European game. It's, it's to do with media, uh, media value and it's to do with broadcast rights and it's to do to an extent with, um, sponsorship and, and and large scale stadia as well. What is it further down beyond what you talked about with um, with the opportunity to to progress and 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 to get promoted and and to um, make competitive gains? What's the commercial opportunity? Is it is it primarily the transfer market, or is there are there other things as well that that you can grow there? I think for you know any sort of multi-club portfolio at medium to smaller size clubs outside the top five leagues, it's entirely focused on the player transfer market. I think you see groups coming in and buying clubs in Belgium, uh, Portugal, Denmark as well. Um, and they're saying, look, for a relatively low cost of entry, we can come in, we can commercialize and, and you know buy clubs that have good infrastructure from a youth development perspective, monetize uh, the talent in that country and sell it for profit. You know, whether they can actually execute on that model is a different question, but those groups are, again, entirely focused on player development. Um, you know, our, the question, I guess I, I would say is, can they leverage the clubs, you know, their interaction with the clubs? You know, can they, you know, depending on the size of the clubs, if you have a club in the second tier in Denmark, are you moving your best players to your top tier club in Portugal? Are those players well suited to play in the different markets? Because obviously the football and culture and style and tactics in each country is very different. I, I couldn't speak to that. I don't necessarily know. I'm not in our workings in some of these groups, but I do know the allure of the player transfer market is a huge motivator for these groups coming in and talking about multi-club ownership. So what does that do? How does that incentivize what you're doing with Helsingor? Because you know that all the, the value is on the pitch. What do you do? How does that affect the way that you run the rest of the club, the commercial operation, um, selling tickets and so on. Are you just trying to stabilize that as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, I think you know we had ideas about really growing the commercial side of the club. Um, obviously, COVID has thrown all of that out the window. But putting that to the side, you know, I think a lot of these clubs there are severe limitations on how much you can grow these clubs commercially. I mean, we talked to people in Denmark, and we, you know, are they going to come to the game because we have amazing food and hospitality and a halftime show and like? dollar beer nights, right? None of that exists in Europe. They come to the games if the team's doing well on the pitch. And in our case in Denmark, is the weather good, right? They're not going to come out when it's freezing cold in the winter, right? So those are the two factors. If we put a good team on the pitch, if they have players that they like, if the weather's good, great. So I think we were a little misguided in terms of being able to commercialize the new stadium. Of course, we've run into COVID issues in terms of that's put a lot of that on the side. But being fair to ourselves, we definitely did have this American mentality of we're smarter we can commercialize these clubs better. And maybe if you're Tottenham and you have a new stadium, there's, there's, you know, you can do some things, but for most clubs in Europe, you're, it's always going to be driven by selling players and media rights for the most part. And I'm not going to say that you shouldn't focus all on the commercial side, because that is a piece of it, but it's such a small piece of it that there's only so much you can do in that piece of the business. And I suppose if you're Tottenham as well, you're, 
running a 60,000 stadium in a city of 10 million people and however many of them support other teams, you've still got an opportunity there to keep people coming through the gates in a way that in a smaller community you maybe don't. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of American groups look and they're like, well, I want to buy a club that owns its own stadium because that's obviously a big thing here in the US to commercialize stadiums. And like most clubs in Europe don't, they're owned by municipalities or you know whatnot. So I think that's another challenge too, is, is trying to find alternate revenue streams that sometimes don't necessarily exist in Europe. Um, you know, you, I assume, I believe Tottenham Stadium was privately financed, I believe. So mm-hmm. obviously there's opportunities there for them to do, to commercialize, bring in the NFL and all sorts of stuff. So that's, that's a very traditional American model, but I think that's the exception, not the role when it comes to European football. Okay. You've talked about the, the project now being to identify other, other, other properties, other clubs elsewhere who they represent a, a step up for you as an owner or as an investor, but also perhaps create connections uh, between different leagues. What's the difference when you're doing it that way from the city football group approach where you have, you've, you've bought the biggest asset first and you have an enormous volume of resources and you can go around and, and kind of buy what you want and the tiers below. What's, uh, how, how do you have to approach it? Which way around do you have to screw your head on? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a reverse city football group, right? City football group starting from the top, obviously buying one of the biggest clubs in the world and then kind of filling in the pieces underneath with smaller clubs. And certainly they're coming, they're going to developing markets. Um, like I said, you know, everything that, that I look to do is much more organic and, and growing from the ground up. And I think if you can, if you can go from a place like Helsinger and then buy, a, you know, a bigger club and figure out how you connect the two dots between those two clubs, then at some point in three to five years, you can scale to another club. I just think it's so difficult to run so difficult to run one football club efficiently and well the idea of running 12 football clubs or whatever city football group is up to just kind of blows my mind putting even the financial piece to the side so from just you know my issue in this sport in general is everyone talks hey i'm going to do this i'm going to buy all these clubs like how do you actually execute it all comes down to execution right how are you going to get there and for me it's hard enough to own one small club let alone a second club so i think it's all about doing things very slowly incrementally understanding how these things are going to add value maybe if you say look you connect Helsinger, Helsinger to a, a bigger club, you can say, all right, we're going to bring in a kid from the United States. He's not good enough for that club in La Liga, right? Or League Two in, in France. Uh, he'll go right to Helsinger. He'll develop for two years and then we'll move him on to our bigger club. So it's a pretty like A to B to C connection when it comes to moving a player around, right? Or we'll bring in a CEO who we think has a lot of ton of potential on the commercial side. We'll send him to Helsinger for a year or two and then move him on to a bigger club. That kind of model makes a lot of sense versus saying, how are all these puzzle pieces between you know, NYCFC and Melbourne City and Man City and the team in Bolivia, like how are all those puzzle pieces fitting together? I think a lot of groups struggle with how cohesively the multi-club model works. So for me, it's it's almost to see how the pieces fit and maybe they don't fit at all. Maybe it's the two organizations operate independently or maybe you decide, look, we're going to exit because this particular asset doesn't make sense in our portfolio. I don't have all the answers. I don't think anyone does necessarily. It's about kind of seeing how the process works and what makes sense. Would would you have to approach it differently structurally as well, I guess, because you you have to have the capacity for oversight within the ownership group as well to make sure that one club doesn't become the forgotten stepchild if you've gone on and, and bought a cl- another club that's more glamorous. You know, you've still got to have people who are, are, are looking out and, and making sure that those efficiencies are, are in place right across the board. Um, Absolutely. Does, yeah, I'm... 
we have an ownership group in Denmark, for instance, it's, there's 15 of us, I believe. And, you know, not everyone's interests are hundred percent aligned, right? Everyone has their own interests when they make investments in anything, let alone football clubs. So some of them, you know, like myself are really ambitious and want to potentially buy a bigger club. Some of them might say, we just, we're happy with our club in Denmark, right? And so how do you make sure everyone's interests are aligned when it comes to multi-club portfolio? Of course, if you're a city football group and you have so much money, you can just splash it around and do whatever you want. But other groups, especially when they're coming together and you, you do see it a good amount where they'll be, okay, American group buys a club in Syria and, you know, one of their partners buys a club in Denmark. Well, okay, there's connections there, but are there connections there, right? Like, how does that work? Are they majority stakes? Are they minority stakes, right? So there is that complicated process and there's no one right answer. You just have to make sure everyone is in alignment, um, making sure everyone's on the same page. And do you think, um, again, do you think that the, the, the primary advantage there is going to be on the player recruitment side? I think so. I mean, yeah, I mean, me personally, you know, one of my strong business models is buying second tier clubs and getting them promoted. We've done that in Denmark. I think that's a good model. Um, but I do think in terms of just straight higher upside, longer term, you know, financial returns, player development and sales has to be a model that makes sense. If you look at the most commercially successful clubs, you know, it's Benfica, it's Porto, it's Ajax, it's, you know, Dortmund, it's the, the selling clubs. Those are the ones that are making the most money and doing things well. Very difficult to replicate those models and it takes many, many years. Um, but I think those are clearly the most attractive from a financial perspective. What have you learned from from the interest that you've had in in Dundalk and in and in Swansea? Where are there where are there parallels and where are there things that are are just you just have to leave what you've learned about say Swansea to one side because it's 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 happening happening at a scale and at a scale of possibility that that doesn't quite exist in other parts of the game. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, um, you know, I, I got into the Swansea group in 2018, very, very small investor, but I, I spent a lot of time there, probably went over six or seven times. And unfortunately for the club at that time, the club went through a relegation that year. Um, and seeing firsthand what that looked like, you know, whether it's plans to expand the stadium, whether it's, you know, future aspirations from a financial perspective, you know, I think it's, I talk about this a lot publicly. I think from an American perspective, we can talk about relegation, what that looks like. But until you're actually a part of a group or understanding and seeing the visceral reaction from the people who are who work at the club and, you know, like I said, infrastructure plans go out the window, you, you can't really understand that. And, you know, I think that experience, what I saw, and again, this year, the club's pushing for promotion. So kind of seeing from the outside or not the outside, what that looks like. I think that experience is incredibly invaluable uh, for myself personally, because I think without that experience, you can you really see you can talk about relegation in concept and in theory. Um, I mean, a good example is the American guys that just went into Parma. You know, I don't know them personally. They seem like very nice guys, but you know, they went into Parma, big club in Italy, and I think they've they haven't won a game in fourteen. They're in the relegation zone, and I'm I'm going to assume that they're in for a pretty rude awakening, understanding what that process is, whether they survive or not, how that affects their fan base, what that's like as an American going through that process, understanding that you just paid 90 million euros for Parma and your club's going to be worth 25 if you're lucky overnight, maybe. And your revenues are going to go down, you know, 80% because of, because of a relegation putting parachute payments to the side. So I think that's the biggest thing I've learned and, and kind of soaked up from my minority investment experiences is like what that process is like. Yeah. And there's nothing quite like, uh, I mean, across the top five leagues, but particularly in England, there's nothing, or England and Wales in Swansea's case, but in the Premier League, there's nothing quite like the risk-reward 
that you get between the championship, top of the championship, and down to six, seventh, eight, and the the bottom of the Premier League. It's a huge. The gap is enormous. I mean, you saw Brent, how close Brentford was to going up last year, um, and the difference in terms of obviously we know the television rights, the differences, the value of the clubs, the differences. The just, I mean, I you know I have to hunt right now to find games on the championship, but like EPL games are on everywhere here in the states. You just turn on the TV and there it is, right? And so the global visibility of being in the English Premier League is just incredibly important. Other clubs get their one shot, their what or their occasional shot. Uh, a bit of profile and a bit of uh, exposure. Dundalk had that this year. What's that dynamic like? Because that that could happen to Helsingor. You never know. In the next four or five years, European football could come along, and and you get the glamour tie that Dundalk had, which unfortunately they had to play, even though they played at a, a national stadium. They they had to play it in, uh, behind closed doors. How does that dynamic, where you can have through Cup success or or continental competition, this sudden burst of exposure, you might have a sudden influx of cash. How do you need to be ready for that as an organization? Yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of clubs look at um, getting to Europe. And of course, that is incredibly important. But I, I don't think a lot of clubs understand the risk reward proposition of getting to Europe. So for instance, we've talked, we talk internally in Denmark about Helsinger and saying, okay, cool. What would it take for us to get into a position where we can get into the Europa League or the new Europa League competition? And the amount of money it potentially takes to get into the top three or four in some of these leagues, like in Denmark, versus the amount of actual prize money you get. Of course, if you make deep runs in the Europa League, I mean, you can make a lot of money, of course. But most of these clubs, let's say the ones we know in Denmark, they're exiting in the first and second round and qualifying in European competition. So they're getting maybe two, three, four hundred thousand euros in prize money, and they're they're spending 10x their normal budget just chasing European competition. So I do think there's this allure of being in Europe. And of course, it's it's amazing. Yeah, Dundalk playing Arsenal in the Europa League, that's fantastic. But for most clubs, and like for us in Denmark, for instance, I think it, it just doesn't necessarily make sense for it to for a risk reward proposition to really go after it. Of course, if you're a bigger club and that's part of your business model, you, you need to do that. Um, but it, it definitely depends on the country and the business model and exactly what you're trying to do. Um, cause it, yes, I mean, Dundalk playing Arsenal is, is I'm sure very big for that club, but it's one game or a two game fixture. And then you move back on, you move to your domestic league. So it's much more, I think, important to have a sound model if you're going to try to get to Europe. And I think most clubs don't have that model. So you're, you're, you want to be well run and then this is all, it's all upside. It's all a bonus once you, once you get there. That's the idea. I think, I, I mean, I think anytime you chase in football, whether it's chasing, spending too much on players to get to Europe or. You're spending too much on bringing in players to sell them. Anytime you, you start making decisions for the wrong reasons, I think. I mean, because it's difficult, right? You could have a conversation. How much do we need to spend as a club to get to Europe? How much do we need to spend as a club not to get relegated? Well, I, you don't know that, right? Of course, there's a correlation between how much money you spend and, and spending on player wages and winning and losing. But it's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. So you can have clubs that are, like I said, we're the second lowest spending team in, in the Danish first division right now, and we're in fifth place right out of 12 teams, right? Okay, that shouldn't happen theoretically, but we're doing things better and more efficiently than other clubs, right? So can you be more efficient and do things better? Can we maybe next year be the fifth spending team and finish in second? That's very possible, right? But if you take the approach, okay, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to triple our budget just so we can get to Europe, and either it doesn't happen, or you get to Europe and you realize, wait a minute, the money in Europe isn't as much as we thought, or we didn't get as much commercialization out of the, the home games because 
uh, we thought we were going to play big teams, like I think then people get into real financial trouble and not understanding how it works. It's more, I think getting into Europe is an amazing aspiration for so many clubs, even if it is just the qualifying rounds. But I think it's a, it, it's really an ego thing for a lot of clubs. And I think, you know, especially clubs in places like Denmark, to me, that's not the end goal. The end goal should be that you're well-run, you're stable. Um, and if great, if you make Europe, that's fantastic. But to me, that shouldn't be your sole motivation. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like, and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice? And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro podcast, we're listening to. We've talked a lot about risk and reward and. There have been a lot of discussions this year about the pyramid and about the levels of risk and reward that investors are, are willing to to embrace. Um, and that's something that, that you mentioned earlier on in this podcast. What do you make of the discussions about, as someone who's attracted to the opportunity um, and the possibility in, in, in that pyramid system, what do you make about the discussions around sealing off some of those routes to uh to progress and and having something that's closer to uh, a more closed model that you you get in in u.s sport yeah i mean i i don't think it's going to happen i mean you know there's talk of the european super league and you know expanded champions league and i think of course the biggest clubs are always going to want a bigger slice of the pie they're going to want to capture more revenue and i understand that but i think Domestic competitions in these countries are still so valuable and so important uh, for the footballing culture in each of those countries. Uh, I mean, the idea of, let's say, a pan Scandinavian league between Norway and Sweden and Denmark. I mean, okay, I guess that could be interesting, but I still think people in Denmark want to see their local clubs play their local clubs. They want to see their clubs in Copenhagen play their other clubs in Copenhagen. I think it's really important that the domestic leagues still have a huge piece of this whole landscape. And I think they always will. I genuinely think they always will. I don't think we're ever going to see a closed system. And I think there'll be talk about it, especially from bigger clubs, but I, I don't necessarily see it changing. I think the system, while it has its challenges and we've seen those accelerated by COVID, I don't necessarily think we're going to see an American style model anytime soon, Europe, if ever. Would you as an investor have been drawn to, to the European game in the same way? If they, if that, If you knew, okay, I can take this club and make it a better run club, but here is its ceiling in the same way that a minor league baseball team might have a ceiling? Probably not me personally, because that, that model isn't as interesting to me again. Uh, but maybe other American investors would be more interested in a more stable financial model. I mean, what the guys I talk to American groups come to me and say, Hey, we want to buy a club in Europe. What's your experience like? And my comment is like, look, you better have a risk tolerance to understand that European football is different than other sports. If you don't go buy a triple A baseball team, right? Go put your money in MLS, right? And that's fine. That might be suited for them. So I think the type of investor, it's just a different type of, of uh, risk tolerance, a different type of investment profile that goes into European football suits me. But you're, it, to answer your question, if the model was different, it probably wouldn't be as attractive to someone like myself. And those conversations that are happening about European Super Leagues, however uh, speculative some of it is, but or about a pan-Scandinavian league, how much trickle down is there in, in in terms of the significance of that? Do you start looking up the league and thinking, well, if there isn't the same opportunity for, let's say, there, you know, Denmark trades some of its uh, Champions League 
seeding, some of that goes to the fifth and sixth teams in, in the Premier League in, in three years' time. And and that gets taken away from from the teams that finish first and second in Denmark in terms of their weighting in, in European qualification. Are you conscious of that knock-on effect or is that something that you're that, that doesn't animate you at this point? I mean, I'm conscious of it. I think most clubs of our size, medium-sized clubs in Europe probably aren't. They're kind of in their own little bubbles. I mean, I, I generally look at the big picture of the landscape of European football for a variety of reasons, including longer-term aspirations. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what the structure is like, right? If all of a sudden the top two clubs in Denmark, FC Copenhagen and Bromby, are, are in their own competition and are not playing domestically in Denmark anymore, of course that will affect all clubs in Denmark and it'll affect the television rights and it'll affect the player transfer market in Denmark. Um, so I think it depends on what the structure is like. If it's just more of an expanded Champions League type format, that that probably won't have as much of an effect. I mean, the Pan-Scandinavian League stuff I've heard about, I don't think it's ever going to happen. I mean, it depends on how that structure rate, is that going to trickle down to medium to smaller size clubs as well? Or is it just going to be the top, you know, 10 to 12 teams in Scandinavia are doing their own thing? And th- in which case that could create challenges, you're right, could block pathways to the Champions League in Europe, could hinder television rights, could hinder hinder player transfer markets. So there's so many discussions out there and there's so many rumors and who knows what's going to happen that it's hard to know exactly what it would look like. Um, but yes, it's something that I follow quite closely. Um, comments that were made this week, just to take the speculation about models to to the club level. Comments were made this week by uh, Jean-Michel Ola, who's the president of Olympique Lyonnais. One of the potential negotiating tactics they will use with their players is to offer equity um, in exchange for salaries. So basically, they have to make some they have to make salary cuts at some point in the next year because of the the financial crunch that there is in, in French football. And he might offer them a piece of the club and a piece of the club's resurgence in return for, uh, in return for those wages. I guess you guys, every club is in a different position as a result of COVID, but have, have you, what, what is, what's your reaction to that? And what's your reaction to different ways of funding clubs, different ways of creating relationships between players and their clubs and, and so on? Uh, I mean, I think it's creative. I'll give him that. I mean, I think they're in a position uh, that they're publicly traded, so they have the ability to offer sh- stock options. Mm. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's been well thought out in any way. I mean, what happens when a player gets stock options and then they get sold to another club and they're a small owner in Lyon and they're playing for PSG? How does that work? Yeah, I think some of these some, some of these things will, will need to be ironed out contractually. Yeah. For so, sure. I mean, I commend them for thinking outside the box and trying to be creative. I understand that they need to cut wages, especially with the mess in French football right now with their media rights deal. Uh, I don't think practically it makes any sense. Maybe they can have the stock options vest after their playing career is over. I'm not sure mm. if the players would be on board with that. Uh, but I don't necessarily see that kind of model making any sense whatsoever. I think the French clubs would be better suited to to get their house in order with their at, with LFP on their media rights deal because you know obviously they took a 50% cut through the end of the year, but there's no long-term media rights deal right now. And that's a big problem. If they don't get that sorted mm. in one form or another, a lot of those clubs are going to go bankrupt. Yeah, I think my understanding was that it's something that's been floated for for the high earners, basically, rather than everybody in the club. But what I suppose I'm I'm trying to make this a question about is is the model of running football clubs where a pretty high percentage of money is spent on player salaries and uh, and a pretty, as you say, there's quite a lot of upside in in transfer fees. 
Are there different ways of imagining the way that a football club should be run? Or, or particularly from your perspective, is that something that would have interested you in the outset? Are you interested by the specific problems and the specific possibilities that the European football scene as it stands offers? Yeah, I mean, I think all the inefficiencies in the space create opportunity, right? It can be really frustrating. It can feel like I'm banging my head against the wall some days of the week, depending on what I see in that landscape. I mean, the amount of money I see spent on player wages at clubs, even clubs of our size on, at other clubs, I just shake my head. You know, clubs will give <clears throat> a 33-year-old player a three-year contract at 5x wages that the market's paying. You're like, what are you guys, like, what are you thinking, right? So I think you, know, you mentioned it, the highest um, expense line for almost all these clubs is player wages. And I think, look, I think players are entitled to get paid what they need to get paid. They're great footballers, but like, the revenue to wage metrics at these clubs is insane, right? Um, I think the whole model of way, the way these clubs are run really needs to change. I don't anticipate it changing necessarily anytime soon, but um, I get tired of hearing it, whether it's internally from our own staff or in Danish football or even in European football of, well, this is just the way things are done. This is the way it, it's always been, right? It's like, well, no, like it doesn't have to be like that. Let's do things differently, right? You know, you don't have to spend 80% of your player you know, of your revenue on player wages. Why not spend 60 and run your business more efficiently, right? Make sure that money that you spend is spent wiser and more efficiently, right? Um, I think, and of course, I'm preaching in the choir here because it all starts at the top, right? The owners are the ones that sign the checks and then the ones that come up with these models and are making decisions. So I think it's up to the leaders, the owners, the leaders of these, these uh, in the leagues to come and say, look, is some form of a salary cap something that makes sense? I know that's been rejected in many countries and is there's pushback already in the UK, but like there needs to be restraints on the way we run these businesses because it's not sustainable. You have something like COVID that comes in and blows the financial model up, a financial model that at many clubs didn't even make sense to begin with. What's the what's the biggest thing you've learned? Just to finish off. Uh I mean that's a good question. I think it's probably going back to the discussion earlier we had on like stability, culture, foundation on and off the field. If you have a good solid foundation of a club, domestic players, maybe a domestic coach, good strategy, good culture, good people, then you are setting yourself up for a recipe for success. If you don't, if any of those pieces are missing, then you're going to be in trouble. And you see it, you see it clubs all over Europe. You see Marseille, you see all the, you know, plenty of clubs that are just a disaster. They bring in the wrong coach. You know, I spent some time a couple of years back sitting at Brentford with those guys. And I just like the way they approach things, they, you know, they would hire an assistant coach, a goalkeeper coach, a throw-in coach, sporting director. And then they would hire the coach at the end. They'd say, look, this is who we are as a club. This is what our mentality is as a club, our culture philosophy. And you need to fit within that. Not here's the keys to the car coach X when we don't like you in three months, we're going to fire you and bring in a new coach. So I think the learning curve is stability, culture. Those are so key, again, in my experience. Jordan, thanks very much. Cool. Thanks for having me. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. Producer is Ed Dixon.